You're listening to Notes from Norwich. Well, this is episode 22 of Notes from Norwich. We're talking about chapters 45 and 46 of the Revelations of Divine Love. I think today is the commemoration of St. Margaret of Scotland when we're recording this. Yes, it is. Yeah. I say I think because it feels like the sanctuary calendar is always sliding around these days, so I didn't know for sure. My calendar, it's St. Margaret of Scotland. Yeah. Well, and I now that I'm like following people from across the communion, I've seen Hilda of Whitby commemorated at least three times already. Yeah, well, so. you know, she's popular. <laughs> anyway, my name is Chris. I'm one of the three hosts, and I'm here with the other two. With Jan, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. And I'm also here with Marguerite. How are you, Marguerite? Very well, thank you. Excellent. We're all well. <laughs> We're starting to, here in Wisconsin at least, it's it's gray and it was windy and cloudy yesterday. And it's starting to feel properly like fall. All my perennials are uh, well and truly asleep now. And the birds are going crazy. It's bird feeders. It's one of my favorite times of year. We've had some good snowfall and it's, it's yeah. already mostly cleared because it's gotten above freezing, but it feels yeah. like winter's here already for us. And yet the, the rivers and lakes are still liquid. That's true. Which is that's true. That's the true test. Yeah. <laughs> it's when the <laughs> when the water gets hard, that's when you know you're in the depths of winter. All right. Anyway, um, we're talking about Julian of Norwich and her revelations of divine love and chapter 45 and 46. Human nature. Yeah. So what do we think about human nature? Where shall we begin? She makes these distinctions between God's judgment and man's judgment. Um, judgment. Uh, so God judges base, judges us based on the essence of our human nature, as she says, which is always kept constantly in him. So there, that is, that's what God uses as the basis of his judgment. We use as the basis of our judgment, what she calls our changeable fleshliness, um, which seems to kind of capture the vicissitudes of uh, our inconsistent holiness. Um, we are sometimes working towards that which is good, otherwise not. Um, it is, this word judgment, uh, I, I looked it up in the Middle English because I was a little confused about where, like, what judgment referred to what. Um, unfortunately, it's not any clearer in the Middle English, which is probably why Father John Julian just used judge for all of it. Um, sometimes she's using the word deem or dome, otherwise it's judge. Um, but what struck me is in her discussion of man's judgment, she says, and this human judgment is muddled 
for sometimes it is good and gentle, and sometimes it is cruel and oppressive. And the word she used for judgment there is actually wisdom. So kind of this kind of uh, this mental faculty of of knowledge and will is what I feel like that captures. Um, and so whatever else like she's saying about God's judgment versus ours, I'm, I'm interested in this idea that our, our wisdom is muddled. Um, sometimes it is good. Sometimes it is cruel and oppressive. Um, and that, so the, the way I the way I approach these chapters is somebody on Twitter once said that, and she was joking, but said that uh, Julian is a good proto-Calvinist, um, which I disagree with, but have not like found a good way of articulating. And so it seems like these, honestly, these paragraphs kind of give us insight into Julian's understanding of our nature and our will and our like the question of total depravity and original sin, like to what extent is our will damaged by sin? Um, and it's buried in convoluted language, but. I think that Julian would say that we are very much buried in, in sin. I think that she would, and then did say that we sin daily. We sin, we sin all the time and there is no way we can avoid it. I mean, we can avoid this sin or that sin, obviously. Now I can refrain from murdering my next door neighbor, etc. And so I have refrained from that sin but we can't avoid sin itself. We cannot avoid our sinful nature. And in that sense, yeah, I mean, I guess she's, she, she could be read as, as, as Calvinist in that, in that sense. Um, she, she somehow, I mean, her, her optimism about our, our human nature is stronger than, much stronger than her assessment of our sinfulness. Right. And that's, that's the thing that I, I, I see a much higher anthropology, much higher, uh, a much greater optimism about human nature in Julian than I see in any other like thinker that's steeped in Augustine. I mean, cause we think of, like we've we've talked about in her understanding of causality and providence, like how how much Augustine shows up in her. But here, like she she has some of the like most optimistic views about human nature that I, I've seen in a in a like uh, a successor of Augustine. Not not only is our like our essence is is one with god but even our our wisdom our judgment is not entirely corrupt um so i 
I actually don't know that I would agree with that assessment, with your, your first assessment that she thinks we're buried in sin. Um, she clearly we're prone to sin. Um, but what, what, what this says to me that our, our human judgment is muddled. Sometimes it's good and gentle. Sometimes it's cruel and oppressive. Um, I don't know. Maybe I'm off in reading that as like a statement of not complete corruption, but that that's what it seems like to me. But I, I don't presume to know enough about Calvinism to, I, I know more about the nasty hot takes that people throw around on Twitter about Calvinism than I do about Calvin himself. So I, I don't have any comment about whether this is Calvinist or not. Um, I'm not a Calvinist uh, as far as I know. And uh, I, I feel perfectly happy without diving too deeply into those doctrines. I do think that Augustine is more optimistic than people give him credit for. I think people have mm. read read back into Augustine a kind of fatalism that Augustine himself doesn't um, doesn't express all the time. He's at he's I mean he's profoundly joyful and grateful for for what God is doing um, and. Mm-hmm. So I think later generations have taken a look at bits and pieces of Augustine and see in them this kind of like, you know, there's no hope, <laughs> there's no health in us. And so if we don't mm-hmm. get right with God, then, um, and embrace the grace, then we're, we're doomed. Um, mm-hmm. but that's Augustine, that's Calvin. What I think is going on with these two judgments, the judgment of God and the judgment of man is, Yes, an ultimate extreme positive optimism about human nature in the sense that there are two levels to us. There's the level at which God embraces and holds in love the core of our essence as as creatures, as part of the creation, and as people made in the image of God. But on top of that, she's able to see how how human beings judge one another and how cruel that can be but also um the you know i assume that like many religious women um she had constant recourse to confessors who were not just kind of people that you would make your confession to but were spiritual directors who would help mm-hmm. you mold and shape uh uh the patterns of your own sinfulness and the development of virtues. Um, and so I, I'm, I think she's trying to make peace with, with, um, with what she sees as both a message that she's picked up about the love of God that can never be separated from us, from which we can never be separated while at the same time, uh, buying into, and I think she does buy into the whole kind of, system of sinfulness and and grace this whole kind Mm of economy of messing up making your confession being restored Mm -hmm. uh, moving from darkness into light moving from Mm -hmm. 
uh, goodness into badness. And I think she can, because I can, so I assume she can, just see it as evident in her own life and in the lives of everyone around her. Like we all have good days and bad days. And so what I think the the metaphor that Julian would is is leaning towards the metaphor that makes sense to me is that sense in which a parent um, loves the child, but then there are days when the parent is just frustrated as all hell with the child because the child is being naughty, and there are days when the child is being delightful and the parent is proud of the the child. So the days and even the hours come and go, but underneath all of that, there's this bedrock of um, of essential love that can never be shaken by what goes on on any given day. But it doesn't mean that what goes on on any given day is not real. So I think she, she doesn't want to deny that stuff and just say, well, you know, God loves us. So everything else is unimportant. So the two things that are thus reconciled and one aren't the sometimes good, sometimes cruel human judgment, but this kind of how God sees us versus this economy of sin, as I I think the word you used. And those are the two things she's holding together? No, I think the the judgment of God and the judgment of humans are the two things that she's holding together. She's The judgment of God is that you and I and Marguerite and all the people who are listening to this and all the other humans are loved by God, held in God's tenderness, and that can never be shaken or taken away. And then at the same time, there is the human judgment, which I think she says the church shares in later on. She says this is part of the church's job is to judge this action and that action, this thought and that thought this state of life and that state of life but those are um those are imperfections on the skin you know they're not at the bone and so i think she's saying that like there's there's something good and true and necessary inevitable about the day-to-day judgments that humans make that is a real part of life. But at the same time, that doesn't change at all what's going on below the surface. Like the same way that like the ocean can have really fierce waves and that you just go down a hundred feet and the water is pretty still, no matter what's going on on the surface. Um, But she does do this fascinating thing where she talks about the good and gentle human judgment and the cruel and oppressive human judgment. Right. And she's, she manages to make good stuff out of both of them. The good and gentle human judgment is part of rightfulness. When humans are good and gentle in our judgment of one another, we're participating in that act of love that God participates in or that God uh, shine, uh, shows forth. And when humans are cruel and oppressive in their judgment, then... Jesus finds a way to reform it and remake it and to make it part of righteousness. So there's no way that we can mess up because somehow God is going to put everything, or Jesus is going to put everything right, which is an amazing twist, Mm -hmm. I think. 
and then both are acknowledged in heaven is that uh once again that we are the 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 imperfections are not denied they're not washed away but they're they're transformed yeah through that wanting i have a psychological assumption that is dangerous but i'm making it anyway that when julian talks about how god reform how jesus reforms and refashions cruel and judgment oppression uh, cruel and oppressive judgment from other people i have a feeling that she's talking about people who have mistreated her mm. and she's saying that people have treated me badly and mm. judged me incorrectly and made assumptions about me and said things about me that are hurtful and wrong and yet i know that god is is redeeming that because because god is in the redemption business but to me there's something in there that sounds like personal experience and that's mm-hmm. dangerous for me to assume because Julian isn't around to defend herself. <laughs> she pretty much never talks about her own personal experience or her own experience with pe- with other people. But what I see here in this chapter and in the next chapter too, is that she is experiencing a conflict with what she knows from God and what she has learned from the church. And that she is um, torn by this conflict where she knows that God has no blame on her or any of us and has no wrath against us. And yet the church has taught her that her sin is offensive to God, that it made God angry with her, that she is deserving of hell because of sin she and not just not just Julian, but any of us, all of us. And yet that's not what she that's not what she hears in her revelations. And so she is she's torn between these two things. She has the church which she has lived in all her life and will live in all the rest of her life. And she has this direct revelation from God about how things are and how she is judged. So the church judges her at one in one way, and God judges her in a completely different way. And how can she how can she reconcile those two things? Well, first of all, where would she go? I mean, it's not like she can just leave the church. Nobody left the church back in those days. And it's not as if she had another denomination to go to, a Methodist church down the street or something like that. Um, So I think that that this is maybe the one thing in her revelations that she never totally figured out. And I, I'm not, I'm not saying that, she might have figured it out because I don't think there is a way to figure it out because I think that, well, never mind what I think, but 
she is, uh, you know, she's torn between that. And a lot of people point to this and say, oh, here's, you know, Julian was like a proto-Protestant. You know, she was somebody who, you know, had the Protestant um, revelation, uh, enlightenment before, you know, before the rest of us got it. And I, I don't think that that's true. I don't think that she ever, I don't think she ever said to herself, the church is wrong. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. she just decided that she was going to stay in the church and listen to what they told her in the church. And she was going to stay with God and listen to what God has told her and just live that way. And that's yeah. Yeah. Now, I've just been reading, uh, Rowan Williams has a, a biography, I guess it's a biography of Teresa of Avila. Um, and the, the final chapter of that is um, really uh, kind of Rowan Williams reframing the role of mystics within the life of the church. Um, and that he says it's a, it, it's a modern, um, like 20th and 21st century conception of mystics where we we live in this kind of fight the power anti-authoritarian age where everybody's finding a way to reject institutions and so we look at mystics and we think well what they are doing is finding a way to be subversive and finding a way to you know uh give the finger to the man you know and go on living their authentic life in the middle of this kind of oppressive system and he says this is a very modern way of thinking about it because this is what we want to be doing. And so we think that our heroes from the past are doing the same thing. And he says that that it's certainly in the case of Teresa of Avila, and it's exactly the same sort of stuff that Julian is wrestling with, where she's wrestling with the messages from the church, from her confessors, from the preachers in the pulpit, from doctrine, and then finding a tension between that and her direct experience of the presence of God and of, of God's love. And for both women, I think Julian and for um, Rowan Williams, uh, his take on Teresa of Avila, that they're trying to be faithful in integrating these two. They don't want to reject one and find a way to like sneak around behind father's back. They want to find a way to say, look, both of these things are somehow um, there's there's wisdom and value in both of these somehow. And what Rowan Williams says is that the, the, the focus or the, the, the repeated pattern of mystics, which I think is true for Julian. It's what he says is true for Teresa. And it's true for mystics of all the way through the Christian story. And it's true for mystics in other religions as well, is that they take the the disciplined life that religions give you, a pattern of prayer, sacraments, or whatever the public worship is, and the public doctrines, and the public canon law, and the public customs, and all these things that pattern a life. And then for the mystic, suddenly all of that stuff makes sense. It's like, oh yeah, there's we're putting all this effort into the Eucharist and into scripture and into prayer and into, you know, color coding the the year and having bishops and priests and deacons. 
And all of these things suddenly make sense to the mystic. Like, oh, yes, there, this is all about God's love. And it is all about the gap between where I am now and where God is. And it is all about how that gap gets close. And suddenly there's like in a way that mystics can't put into words because it's it's beyond the verbal. It is just directly experiential and it's really hard to explain any experience. Um, but it is profoundly integrative, not disruptive. It feels disruptive to those of us who aren't where they are because we haven't had their experiences and we're still living in this like world of structure. But that's why the mystics seem to wrestle with the institutions later on, because like they've got to go back and relearn what all those rules and regulations are all about from the other side of the experience of, of union. Um, but they never reject all that stuff. Like none of the mystics that I know of said, you know what? Now that I've achieved union with God, I have no more need to go to mass or no more need to say my prayers or, you know, we can take down the statues now because I've had my union with God. None of them do that. They all say, well, isn't it great that all of this stuff is pointing to this, to this goal? Um, and isn't it great that God puts so much effort into motivating us to seek this goal? So, um, so I, you know, I've started when I read that, and then I came back and read this. It felt like a completely different chapter, having between before reading that chapter from Rowan Williams and after, because now I see in this an attempt to integrate. Um, and not in a way that says, well, the church must be wrong because I've figured it out, but how can both of these be true and good and necessary? And I think she actually pulls it off pretty well. well and she, she says, like, therefore, I could in no way give up that lower judgment that was taught to her by Holy Church. Like, she's very explicit about not wanting to give either of them up. Um, and the, the kind of, the emotion that goes into this was, I, I see, you know, just reading it, I had not noticed this phrase before, but she says she was unable to be fully comforted because of the judgment of Holy Church that she'd understood. Mm-hmm. But there is this, like, there, it's a, a very, like, psych, psychologically emotionally involved dilemma so yeah yeah i think that uh framing in light of that rowan williams chapter makes a lot of sense um and and then she says uh then this was my desire so that she this is what she then wants that i could see in god in what way the judgment of holy church here on earth is true in his sight and how it is proper for me truly to understand it. So yeah, so this is exactly what you're talking about. She's now then going back. She's had this experience, this this vision of of love and God's wanting with our essence. And now she's she's circling back to the the judgment of holy church, this lower, lower judgment she's she calls it, 
um, and trying to understand it, relearn it, I think was the word you used, in light of this experience. I think if you take chapter 45 here and you read it immediately before or after reading Paul's letter to the Romans, where he talks about the purpose of the law being to convict us. Like God has given us the law. God has. Um, and yes, I admit, you know, I, I, I acknowledge all those people who are currently shouting at their iPhones as they're listening to this thing, but, but there's, there's a, a, a misunderstanding of the purpose of the law and Paul is anti-Semitic. Yes. I, I know, <laughs> I know all those arguments. Um, but Paul's argument is that the, the whole purpose of the law is to show us the impossibility of achieving this on our own. And I think Julian here is saying that the church, the judgment of man, man's judgment as it is expressed in the church, sometimes gently, sometimes with great cruelty and oppression. I think she recognizes that we all have to. Um, the church can sometimes be harmful to people. And yet, she says that like without without this recognition that we are not on our own where we should be, I mean, how else can we open the door for gratitude unless uh, uh, unless I personally am able to say, um, none of this is my own responsibility, and all of it is just a gift from God because back to the beginning, God judges me based on the essence of my human nature, which is always kept constantly in him whole and safe without end, but not because of me because of God. Wow. My experience when I hear confessions is that people come to confession, certainly the first few times that they do it, um, with great nervousness, great anxiety. Um, uh, and and then at the end, nearly always they feel, uh, uh, they express a great sense of relief. Um, and then when I talk to them later on, or if they come for subsequent confessions and I kind of ask them how, how it was the last time, um, they say, well, you know, I got home and I didn't feel as transformed as I thought I would. I thought, you know, and I've, I've meditated on that. And I thought, well, what were you expecting? Like it, <laughs> confession is, um, good but it doesn't fix all the psychological hang-ups that we cling to um and i think from the other way around like the uh the sense of judgment on one level doesn't doesn't change at all the like the 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 bedrock of god's love for us just like from our perspective like making a confession objectively puts us right with God again. And that's mm -hmm. great as does participation in the Eucharist and all sorts of other things that we can do, but it doesn't mean that all of the 
stuff in us that needs healing is healed. That's that's asking too much of it. Um, so, like, they're two sides of the same coin. Um, I don't know where that came from, but... <laughs> Anyway, anything else on chapter 45? She points ahead to chapter 51, the Lord and the servant. So this is the uh, the longest chapter, 50, 51 is the longest chapter of the Revelations, which is which contains this long parable of the Lord and the servant, which she says is the only response she got um, to this desire to see in what way the judgment of Holy Church is true in God's sight. So I'm interested when we get there um, to see what reading it through that lens does, particularly the way you've framed chapter 45 this way. Like, yeah, I think that will uh, change how that parable gets unpacked for me. And she, yeah, she just she just reiterates at the end of that chapter that the essence of our human nature is now blissful in God and has been since it was made and shall be without end. Mm. And it is it is through she talks about this process of understanding our failures and then yearning for f- to be filled with joy and bliss, and that. Uh, that's that kind of reinforcing cycle of knowledge and yearning, knowledge and yearning um, towards seeing ourselves as one in essence. So I and think uh, churches do great harm by just telling people that they're sinners and they're going to hell. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think churches also do, Marker, you agree with that? <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think they also do a great deal of harm by just telling everybody that everything's joy and light and right. they're okay. Because yeah. then what do you do when you feel like it's not okay? What do you do with suffering? Like if, if your dear listener, if you're listening to this, if your religion isn't helping you to get prepared for the next episode of suffering in your life, find a different religion because what good is religion? What good is any philosophical system if it doesn't prepare us for um, real suffering and tragedy? And, and I think part of what Julian is doing in all the way through the revelations, but she's wrestling with it in a specific way here in this chapter is saying like, how can we hear this message of God's boundless love. And yet at the same time, what do we do with the fact that like, if I look out the window, I can see people suffering in the street. Like, how do we integrate these two? And this, I think the whole of the revelations is a meditation on that. Um, But in this specific way, she's wrestling with it in her own experience of judgment. And, and so judgment um, being 
a whole range of kind of moral evaluation, but also um, essential evaluation, like goodness and badness, worth and worthlessness. Um, yeah. Because the world is not all sunshine and roses. <laughs> right. Um, and yet God is in the process of making everything reconciled and bringing it into rightfulness. And part of that process is the recognition of the failure and the yearning that creates. Like, I, I think she, I think she sees like part of that work of reconciliation is this self-knowledge. Um, and that's, that's what she picks up on in chapter 46 is this, this knowledge of ourselves that comes through faith. And, and right. the kind of, yeah. What? On, on to chapter 46. Yeah. I mean, um, we, when we know ourselves, then she says, we know God, that it is, it is through knowing our fleshliness, our, our, our flaws are where our failings are that we come to know God in the fullness of joy. Um, so that's what, that's why I think she sees this, like, this process of knowing and then yearning as part and parcel with the work of reconciliation of, of bringing all things under God. <clears throat> it's, it, it is only through coming to know ourselves and in the f- naked, naked weakness of our, of our situation that that we can come closer to God and yearn to be closer. So here's at the very beginning of chapter 46. But the passing life that we have here in our fleshliness does not know what our self is, except in our faith. So I think what she's saying right at the beginning here is that that our self the fullness of my essence is one thing that lives in eternity and my perception of the passage of my life, the day to day experiences that I have aching backs and brushing my teeth and having pita and hummus for lunch, that sequence of events cannot access the reality of my essence. It, it, I cannot know who I am. I can take on trust who I am, but I, I actually have no access to the experience of my own eternity and blessedness. So <laughs> that ties together with this, this psychology concept that I was just introduced to because I listened to an old episode of Hidden Brain on NPR. It's talking, it's this theory put out by uh, um Kahneman, what's his first name? Daniel Kahneman. Um, Or he talks about the construction of our minds into the remembering self and the experiencing self. 
the experiencing self is that part of us that ha- that actually directly experiences life as it comes by, all the sensory input, pain and joy and delight. And I'm liking this piece of food and I'm liking, you know, the sensation of being in a nice warm bath and I'm experiencing pain during my two hours in the dentist chair. But then the remembering self is a whole different part of your brain that is recording events and records things in a different way than your experiencing self experiences them. And so then what happens is when we are making decisions about our life, it's the remembering self that makes those decisions. Do I hate going to the dentist? Yes, because my memory is of an episode of pain or an experience that was good or whatever. But so like he says that there's, uh, for example, this, um, this realization that, uh, that the experiencing self, you, you can go and have a colonoscopy. This is what he was talking about and have, you know, a long period of a lot of pain and discomfort, but the remembering self remembers the peaks and the conclusions. So they remember the experience of pain at its absolute worst. So the peak of it, but not for duration. Your remembering self really can't conceive of two hours of pain. It can think of, I was in pain that hurt like this, the peak of the pain. And then the remembering self remembers how the event concluded, how it resolved. So they did this experiment where they said, like, the the colonoscopy, you know, it's very painful, very uncomfortable back this was several decades ago before they had all the modern stuff. And they said right at the very end for the last few minutes, be very gentle um, as you're concluding the procedure. And what people reported was that their memory of the event was better because they still had the same peak pain, but the remembering brain remembers how things resolved. So it, the remembering brain can't remember that you still had two hours of discomfort or an hour of real pain and suffering. It remembers that it hurt for a moment, but then it resolved. Okay. It was okay at the end. Um, and he goes into, I'll put a link to that particular show in the, the show notes, but so your, the point is that the, the, that, our ability to look back on our lives is based on a whole part of our brain, a whole structure of memories and storytelling about our memories, meaning making about our memories. That it is, that is a very different part of our brain and our personalities that actually experiences the world in a moment to moment basis. And so that that just that popped into my mind when I was reading this bit from Julian about how our like that part of our self, the part of my personality that is my fleshliness, my passage, my my sequence of experiencing things through my life, the cup of coffee that I'm sipping from right now and the hardness of the chair that I'm sitting in and these words that I'm saying to the two of you and um. None of that is the same as 
myself at my essence, and I really have no access to who I am in God. Um, because like that's walled off almost from, from my direct experience. Hmm. Um, so I've been doing a lot of thinking about what it means to be a human being and what it means to be integrated as a human being. Right. Um, as, as you were talking, especially that last part, my, my gut was like, well, is it actually walled off from ourselves? Um, and I think maybe, maybe on a natural level it is. And then that's, that's the function of grace, mercy and grace in Julian's framework is to, to kind of break down that wall even though we we can't fully know ourselves until the last point she says but we can increase and grow in the knowledge by the furthering and aiding of mercy and grace so that's where so what the situation you're describing where it's walled off is perhaps where we're where we're at without the operation of grace through this process of knowing and yearning. Um, but then, but then the journey that we're asymptotically like being led closer to is knowing, knowing ourselves better, but never quite fully having that wall broken down through grace and mercy. I've been thinking a lot about memory lately for some reason or other. I mean, probably a lot to do with the COVID and not, and having less to do and being able to reflect more. And some memories that come to me from my life, I can see God's hand in those memories. I can see God's hand in those situations and those events. And many of them are small and things that know that you wouldn't think you'd ever remember. I mean, I'm not talking about like my confirmation or my wedding or anything like that. I'm talking about really, really small things, but that seem that have so much weight and that I can see how God was working in my life in some of these little things. And normally I think that, Knowing myself is no big deal. It's just not even the least bit important to anything. And I, I don't, I don't know if that's true anymore. But I think that having these, having these memories come to me, and seeing how that, how something happened in my life, and I'm not talking about, you know pain that, that went away. And then I have, it, it's, you know, something completely um, random, um, not traumatic or anything like that at all. It, it, some, but anyway, maybe, it, maybe it is important for me to, maybe it is important for us to know, to know ourselves a little better than, than we think we do. And maybe, you know, maybe being open to it 
is um, is is a good thing. And I will just tell you this one very short episode. But I was in a grocery store, and this was long ago. This was before I was even married. And I was in a grocery store with a friend, and there was a young couple also shopping. And the girl, and I'm saying girl because they were very, very young, held up this box of Velveeta cheese to her boyfriend and said, this is good cheese. And at that moment, I did not judge her. And that was like, I almost could think that that was the first time I ever refrained from judging somebody, ever refrained from being disdainful of someone. And it taught me something. It taught me something really, really important. And I can't think that that wasn't God working in my life. As silly as the story is, it just seems that it just seems that that's what was happening. And and so and so those memories are things that I that I that I treasure that I um, that I that I hold on to and take value in. And so maybe it is important for us to, you know, as she says, we can never fully know ourselves until the very end. And then all manner of pain and woe shall be ended. And if that little tiny memory ended some pain in me and some woe in me, then I think that a full knowledge of ourselves will be just as she said, will be the end of pain and woe. Yeah. So I'm in this. Yeah. Okay. So I'm in this class on the prophets for seminary and we're working through Ezekiel and we get to Ezekiel 16, which is that really like colorful passage about, um, Israel being the foundling child that God then marries. And, but um, one phrase that keeps getting repeated in that story of Israel walking away from God is you did not remember the days of your youth. Um, And at least part of the point of that is that if Israel remembered the days of her youth, she would remember God's faithfulness, that all good things came from God. Um, she, she would, she would see God for who God is. Um, and that, so that idea of like remembering the days of our youth, knowing ourselves, knowing where where we came from, where we how we got to where we're at, um, as a as it as an an aspect of knowing God, and and so Julian says it, it belongs properly to us to yearn and desire with all our might to know ourselves. And in this full knowledge, we shall truly and clearly know our God in full and endless joy. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's this, this union of knowing ourselves in order to know who we are in relationship to God. 
I think, is is what this self-knowledge accomplishes. It's it's not knowing ourselves as as the object of our knowledge, but it's knowing ourselves to get that perspective of who we are in relationship. Um and that that being the source of joy. Remembering the days of our youth, not because we're hot, but because remembering the days of our youth reminds us who God is. We're going to have to bleep that out now, Jan. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Um. (laughs) Too spicy. Yeah. um, (laughs) Self-knowledge as an inevitable, as a necessary component of our knowledge of God it, it makes sense from two different perspectives to me. The first is um, the experience of deepening in prayer, because prayer is, you know, the label we give to the whole of uh, our relationship to God, including all the things we do to support that relationship. But um the deepening deepening in into the life of prayer requires both a certain amount of reflection on prayer itself or what we're doing in prayer in order to support that relationship um reflection on who is on the other end of the phone line who's on the other end of the relationship and also who we are who's engaged in this relationship um because any distortion in any of those three things leads to distortion of the whole relationship. Um, And so not that we can ever perfectly understand any of those three components, but we should be constantly uh, reflecting on all three of those components, myself, God, and the quality of prayer life. So self-reflection, theology, the understanding of God, as God tells us who God is. Um, And then also spirituality, the process of exploring my own relationship with God. Then from the other side of it, from an incarnational perspective, if if we best experience, if we best understand God, if God has revealed God's self to us most perfectly in the person of Jesus Christ, then we cannot understand God at all until we understand Jesus. We can't understand Jesus if we have a faulty understanding of what humanity is, what what a human being is. And the best test subject for a human being that I have access to is myself. So the more that I understand myself, the more I understand Jesus, the more I understand Jesus, the more I understand the creator of the universe. Um, so I've just been kind of arguing gently with my Christian spirituality professor that I think all discussion of spirituality has to begin with the subject with myself, because that's where all of my experience begins from. Um, and then part of that self-understanding has to do very much with with the weaving together of our the stories we tell about our own memories, our histories, 
Um, because that, I think, is mostly what our own concepts of ourselves are. They're the experiences that we've had, plus the stories that we tell about those experiences. Um, there's uh, James Baldwin who said, history is not the past, it is the present. We carry our history with us. We are our history. I think he was talking mostly about the African-American experience, but I think it's uh, what's potently true for the African-American experience is true for all humanity, uh, for all individuals. We are the stories that we have about ourselves. And so weaving those together with the narratives of God's work within uh, human history to bring about salvation is part of what it means for us to be religious people. Um, the, the whole of the salvation story is, is present in each of our lives individually, somehow. So, yeah. And Julian, um, she, she returns to this, like, She's, she's describing all this, and yet at the same time, there's still this tension between this endless continuing love and the common teaching of Holy Church. And there's this bit that sticks out to me now because of your framing about this this going back to relearn the 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 kind of quotidian phenomenal aspects of religion. Um, in this showing, I. Uh, because I was not by the showing moved nor led from the church teaching in any kind of point, but in the showing, I was rather taught to love that teaching, to delight in it, for by it I could, with the help of our Lord and his grace, grow and rise to more heavenly knowledge and nobler loving. Just back to that, back to your point that like it is, it is coming back to these things with a new awareness of how of where they're pointed. And so it is then through through the teaching of Holy Church that we come to know more deeply that we are sinners and that we deserve pain and blame and wrath. But nonetheless, she brings with it this awareness, this newly deepened awareness that God does not see us with blame. Yeah. He says, God is the goodness that cannot be angry, for he is nothing but goodness. Our soul is one to him who is unchangeable goodness. And between God and our soul is neither anger nor forgiveness as he sees it, because there is no anger. Yeah. Forgiveness is not. A factor. That feels radical. That is very radical. I wrote down whoa right next to it. I I had wow. (laughs) Yeah. So she's aware and feels the instinctive truth of the church teaching that because of our universal sinfulness, we do in reality at some level deserve punishment for it. 
she admits that at some level that's true. Right. Um, and yet at another level, it is as though none of that matters. Correct. Um, I was just watching a YouTube video of a therapist breaks down a scene. Um, I'll link to this in the show notes as well. It's a therapist breaking down that scene from the movie Goodwill Hunting, where um, Will, played by Matt Damon, first goes for his first therapy appointment with Robin Williams' character. And the therapist is breaking down like all the stuff that Robin Williams is doing in it, all the stuff that Matt Damon is doing in it, and like how. Like from a therapist's perspective, apart from one particular bit where Robin Williams grabs Matt Damon by the throat and pins him up against the wall, other than that bit, it's actually a really good first meeting uh, of a client and a therapist. And all the way through, the therapist is saying, because of his woundedness, because of his the pattern of his life and the expectations he has from authority figures, all the way through, Will, Matt Damon's character, is finding different ways to attack the therapist. All these different ways to like be snarky, to be insulting, to be sarcastic, to, to attack him on all these different levels because that's his pattern from his woundedness. He hurts people before they can hurt him. And yet right at the very end, what makes, what makes the experience with Robin Williams character different from the other therapists is that Robin Williams says, you know, make sure he's back here next Thursday. Like uh, Robin Williams will not refuse to continue the relationship just because he's been viciously attacked for an hour um, to his own breaking point. So that's just, I just watched that yesterday. So it's popped into my mind that there's this like, Yes, indeed. In reality, Matt Damon, his character at least, is being objectively a jerk. He is being harmful and hurtful and mean and nasty and cruel and all those other things that humans do. But it's as though those kind of don't, they don't touch the what's going to become this relationship as time goes on. Because these things exist at different levels. Um. And so the usual pattern that Matt Damon's character is used to playing out, that he fights people, drives them away, and then he can continue to live in this pattern of sinfulness that is his life. Um, Rowan, uh, Rowan, <laughs> Robin Williams' character isn't going to uh, engage in that at the same level. In the same way that like, we really do get caught up in these patterns of sinfulness that really do hurt us and other people. And that really do bring real consequences to us. And yet below all of that, there's something that can't be touched by it. Which is kind of a mystery to Julian as it is to us, because it's I think it's hard for humans to understand not getting revenge for mm -hmm. the times when we've been hurt. It's hard for us not to demand that people pay for their mistakes because um, that doesn't feel like justice to us right that's why we have this perennial problem with that um 
the parable of the workers in the vineyard where all these people show up at different times of the day and get paid the same amount. And we instinctively say, that's not just the people who worked for eight hours should be paid more than the people who showed up with 10 minutes to go. But our, our justice and God's justice, fortunately are not the same thing. Um, But it's just, it's a mystery to us. Like, how can you just, like how can not even anger or forgiveness, how can you just live in neither of those? How can right. neither of those be part of the dynamic? And that really is um, a puzzle. It's almost like, is that a typo? Right. <laughs> anger but it's, nor forgiveness? That, but that mystery is the heart of what she sees the revelations leading her into. Like that, she's, to this understanding, the soul was led by love and drawn by power in every showing. Like that's <laughs> that mystery. That's like neither anger nor forgiveness as he sees it. That's central. But doesn't um, Jesus forgive us? Like, haven't we heard that time and time again? We have. We have. Uh, it's mind blowing. Insert the emoji of the little mushroom cloud coming out of my head. <laughs> but she says, with this, I am well satisfied, awaiting our Lord's will in this high wonder. And now I yield myself to my mother, Holy Church, as a simple child ought. And so somehow, somehow in this, she finds place of harmony of, of, of sitting with both these things, both what God has shown her and what she knows from the church. Somehow in this, in this mystery of yes, we are sinful and God does not view us with blame, with neither anger nor forgiveness. She finds a, a, a peace. I mean, this sounds very peaceful. She's satisfied. She's awaiting. She yields herself like a child. It's beautiful and baffling. <laughs> beautiful and baffling. Yes. That's mystics for you. Yeah, <laughs> truly. <laughs> can't live with them, can't live without them. As they say. <laughs> Everything that this simple soul understood, God wills that it be shown and known. For those things that he wishes to keep secret, he himself mightily and wisely hides out of love. For I saw in the same showing that much that is hidden is secret that can never be known until the time that God of his goodness has made us worthy to see it. With this, I am well satisfied, awaiting our Lord's will in this high wonder. Thank you for listening to this episode. To find out more about Dame Julian, the revelations of divine love, the order of Julian of Norwich, or us, check the show notes to this episode. You can reach me, Chris Arnold, the producer of this series, at 
Apple Tree Pods on Twitter, or on Facebook, you can find the page Apple Tree Podcasts. That's all for now. We'll talk to you soon. May God bless you.